This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Christian Owens. He's the CEO and founder of Paddle, a payments infrastructure for SaaS businesses. Prior to Paddle, Christian created his first software business from his bedroom at just 14 years of age. Having grown the business to over a million in revenue, he decided to quit school at 16 to focus on building startups full-time. In 2016, Christian was named one of Forbes's 30 Under 30 and a Teal Fellow by the Teal Foundation. In early 2022, Paddle raised its Series D, which has turned the company into a UK-based unicorn. We talk all about that experience as well as Christian's decision to drop out of school how a looming recession could impact Paddle and SaaS more broadly, the origins of the company and a great war story that came with registering the Paddle URL, and much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is my great chat with Christian Owens. So rewinding back to some of your previous fundraises, you raised close to $70 million in a Series C. Your Series D, I believe, is led by KKR at the $1.4 billion valuation recently. So just as a young founder of a, an incredible SaaS company, as you've raised A, B, C, and D, how has the fundraising process differed each round? Yeah, it's. I think it's differed in a number of ways. I think kind of the first way, way it's differed is sort of that stretch of fundraising has probably been over like an eight-year period of time. So we've definitely seen like the market shift. Like when we raised our Series A, we raised $4 million, which is like a a seed round or like a pre-seed seed round uh, these days. So that's definitely changed. I think the type of investor and, and I think the thing that they look for at those different stages is is very different. I think we very much sort of between probably series B onwards was probably the most noticeable difference in terms of just the level of sophistication that people were, were looking for from us as a business and the level of kind of understanding that we had around kind of our business, how it performed in relation to the market, our abilities on the commercial side of things in order to kind of say what we're going to do and then do what we say. There's a lot more forgiveness at sort of seed series A sort of up to kind of like series B stage of like a we're very much betting on kind of the future execution of this business rather than a continuation of a previous execution. Whereas I think Series C, Series D was very much a, we're betting on the continuation of previous ex- execution, like your ability to compound this as opposed to your ability to figure it out. What are the metrics that matter? I mean, there are the obvious ones, right? AR, MRR, burn multiple. Uh, there's some others that are, that are thrown around. For those SaaS founders that are curious as to what are the, say, three, four, five metrics that are important to measure, how would you describe that? Yeah, there's, there's definitely the, the core ones um, that you mentioned, which I, I think never go away. I'd say probably the most focus sort of that was given to in in like this round and probably the one previously was net revenue retention and sort of just cohorts in general. 
How do they perform over time? How do they compound the net revenue retention of the business and sort of gross and net, um, actually like gross retention, net retention, our ability to kind of expand into accounts over time and sort of have a really solid understanding of that kind of not just sort of that it's going to continue, but like what it looks like on a cohort basis. So of the customers that we landed in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, like are there patterns around net revenue retention sort of in those cohorts a few years later where it gives us some confidence and predictability about kind of, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to hit a fairly ambitious plan for this year and we're going to have like a reasonable amount of bookings. What's that going to look like kind of three, four years from now? And as sort of, I think the customer profile probably changes with the business, like we've certainly gone more up market as, as we've scaled, like do those core fundamental metrics, especially around like net revenue retention remain kind of the same or even improve? How do you think about the current economy, potential recession on the horizon? How do you think this impacts what you guys have raised uh, in terms of a Series D and and what's going to happen going forward? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I kind of think of it from two perspectives. So Paddle's business, we sell to other SaaS companies. So primarily to other SaaS and subscription businesses, we have kind of 3,000 of those using Paddle and sort of like 30,000 businesses using kind of the product that we just acquired, ProfitWell, which kind of puts us in a unique position from a data perspective in that we have like the core underlying financials of kind of over 30,000 SaaS companies. And due to like our kind of revenue model, we take a very much of a sort of like do it for you approach to kind of billing and, and retention and all of these things, that, the areas that we cover. So we very much kind of are align our revenue is aligned with our customers' revenue. So I think the two things that we've seen, just to kind of give a little bit of, uh, of context sort of from that data, is in B2C companies, it's been kind of pretty abysmal kind of year to date. We've seen an average kind of decline in kind of uh, those companies on kind of sort of obviously there are outliers on both ends of the spectrum. But on average, those companies actually haven't been growing this year at all. They've been declining month over month. And then B2B SaaS is a little bit more interesting. Kind of B2B is, is sort of the other area where it's a kind of decent kind of proportion of our customer base and probably where we focus more. Growth there has actually been fairly stable. You kind of look at a chart over a long enough period of time. You see a little blip during COVID. You see a little blip during Christmas when everybody sort of stopped selling stuff for a while. But kind of other than that, it's sort of up and to the right. The most interesting thing about kind of B2B SaaS that we've seen over the last call it, uh, sort of this quarter, last quarter has been sort of probably the highest churn in B2B SaaS companies that we have seen in many years, sort of like kind of really off the charts. So kind of these businesses continue to book new customers, they're continuing to add new revenue. If anything, they're adding new revenue at a greater pace than they were previously. But kind of they're struggling to keep a hold of customers that they've already had and customers that they've had for a long time. And then in terms of us, like how we are playing this and how we are thinking about it, we went out and we raised $200 million at a really great valuation. Um, We closed that end of April, early May. And I think quite honestly, sort of chalk it up to luck, we timed it perfectly. Because if we'd done it three or four months earlier, we probably would have been valued at sort of three or $4 billion, sort of on the base of all the metrics. And we would be kind of crapping ourselves right now because we were like, how on earth are we going to grow into that valuation? It's sort of like, it's going to be a 36, 48 month cycle for us to kind of grow into that on the basis of current multiples. And then Quite realistically, if we'd done it two months later than kind of April and kind of closed two months later, so closing about now, we probably wouldn't have been able to put away a $200 million round at a valuation sort of that wasn't kind of too dilutive for us and kind of be able to do this acquisition. So I think that for us, feel very fortunate 
but we raised exactly when we did. I think we hit that sort of almost perfect kind of two-month window where valuations were coming down a little bit to sort of like the mean, but kind of we weren't in this environment where there was a lot of fear. So rounds weren't happening, especially these growth rounds. So for us, we did that round for kind of two reasons. One, business is growing great. And we wanted to be able to kind of double down on the things that were working. And two, we acquired a business called ProfitWell at the same time. And for us, I think that we're now finding ourselves in a position where We've done this acquisition. We have a better balance sheet than we've ever had. We have a lot of cash. I think we want to invest in growth, but be very cautious about how we do that. And there are big unknowns. And I think kind of there are even more unknowns just after an acquisition as well. And I think around all of those things, we kind of, we're just being a little bit more cautious than we probably would have been six or 12 months ago. You talked about customer cohorts a few minutes ago. Just listening to you, I'm just thinking about sort of the global market and how this recession might impact countries globally. Do you look at this as sort of one market and how the recession is sort of impacting all of the countries you service equally across the board? Or or do you feel like certain countries will navigate their way out of this better than others in terms of your customer cohorts? For us, we've built the business very internationally from day one. I think if you look at our revenue today, maybe four or 5% of it comes from the UK. So we're incredibly like geographically diverse from a revenue base. I think the the thing that we're seeing at the moment is these trends that we're seeing, whether it's B2B or B2C, kind of they're kind of impacting these companies sort of regardless of their location. Because I think that the dynamic is such that actually a lot of these companies that we sell to are quite geographically diverse as well. So it kind of just cascades kind of through this, even if the US is being hit slightly worse than maybe kind of a different part of the world, because a lot of the revenue from those underlying companies that we work with is coming from the US, it tends to kind of mirror what's happening in the US overall, because it's such a kind of large portion of the market. That's kind of in stark contrast, interestingly, to what we saw in our data and our customer base when COVID happened. So when COVID happened, you could see country by country in the cohorts, sort of when the country went into a lockdown or had some sort of COVID measure, because the graph would either would spike in one direction or another, like within 48 hours of that happening in that country. Whereas this, it's sort of you look at them and all of the charts look almost exactly the same. The real difference sort of looks like it's between whether they're selling to kind of pure consumers, pure kind of business enterprise or something in the middle, like a prosumer sort of audience. And kind of on that spectrum, they seem to be like consumers the worst, enterprises the best, the stuff that's in the middle is getting hit, but not quite as hard. So you talked about ProfitWell. That acquisition just happened recently. It's funny. I ran into Patrick at Subta down in Orlando. He seemed to be in a very good mood. So how did that acquisition come together? How do you know Patrick? And why does ProfitWell make sense for Paddle? So I've known Patrick for four or five years now. I was on one of his many podcasts probably about five years ago. He interviewed me. And from that moment, we sort of became friends, but kind of we call it conference friends in that we would literally run into each other at conferences and then probably end up spending kind of a disproportionate amount of time with each other at those events when we probably should have been spending time with other people. Both of us thought in a very similar way about what the future of SaaS businesses look like. We co-aligned on a, a sort of thesis, which was V1 of SaaS products, especially B2B, were kind of products like Salesforce. Really, they were built for the manager. They were built for the the sort of Like the sales rep didn't enjoy using Salesforce, but the VP of sales did because they got lots of great reports and things like that. And then V2 of SaaS was sort of like the DIY SaaS. It was like, here is a bunch of tools 
that you can use to go and kind of scratch your own itch or solve your own problem and lots of drag and drop, lots of WYSIWYG editors, lots of this stuff. And the thing that we really align around is we think V3 of SaaS is kind of do it for you. So products where they're not just providing you with a tool to help you better solve a problem yourself, but really they're kind of taking the full scope of the problem and just solving it for you. So kind of that was the approach that we took when we were building Paddle to things like payments and recurring billing and, and invoicing. And that was the approach that kind of Patrick had taken with ProfitWell to things like retention and financial analytics. And then in October, November of 2021, I flew over to Boston and, and met with kind of two of the three co-founders of ProfitWell and just sat with them in a room and was like, look, guys, it kind of seems like we're trying to solve a bunch of very similar problems to each other. And the thing that we absolutely align on is the way to solve them. And it's sort of they're so adjacent to each other that do you think that maybe we should just be trying to solve these problems together instead? You know, these versions that you mentioned, V1, V2, V3, I like how you frame that. Fast forwarding to, to V3 and beyond, who are some of the best players that, that seem to understand this notion of delivering a done-for-you model in the best way? I think that there are a lot of them are these SaaS companies that sort of straddle somewhere. Like the most easy examples are the ones that straddle somewhere between SaaS and commerce. So you look at a business and they tend to be vertically specific as well because you tend to, in order to do it for you, you tend to need to be vertically specific so that you can actually solve the problem for a specific type of business rather than building kind of this thin horizontal layer. So something like a toast is a really good example of this point of sale system, but specifically built for restaurants where kind of, they're not saying that like, oh, you need to go out and buy half a dozen different things, like a kitchen management thing, and then a, a booking thing for online, and then a table management thing, and then a point of sale and all of this stuff. They're giving you basically like the operating system to go and run a restaurant. And rather than you having to figure out what's the best way for us to allocate online bookings to tables, they're just doing it. They're just figuring out, okay, you give us a floor plan of the restaurant, we're going to go and allocate this in the best possible way. And we're going to go help you manage inventory and, and sort of do all of this stuff. I think Shopify is a really good example as well of that same model, but online. The version pre-Shopify was go and find an e-commerce sort of product, go and find a payments thing, go and find a different thing to help you with some other portion of it, fulfillment, whatever it is. And you take kind of Shopify's approach, which is oh, we're going to go and build you the e-commerce platform that has built-in payments that's going to help you with taxes. We're going to build a fulfillment network. We're going to do all of these things. And we're going to let you focus on basically what is every business's three most important things. How do you build the best possible product? How do you hire the best possible people? And how do you make sure your customers are really, really happy? And like, you do those three things and you shouldn't be focusing on basically how you solve the same problem as everyone else who's trying to build a competing or same industry business to you. Every restaurant in the world has to figure out how they do point of sale, kitchen management, sort of online bookings. Every e-commerce business in the world has to figure out how they do kind of that online e-commerce and fulfillment piece. And for us, we think every SaaS business in the world has to figure out how they bill customers, invoice them, how they manage retention and do all this stuff. And fundamentally, we think that uh, kind of through that, do it for you plus the fact that these, the nature of these businesses tends to be vertically specific, it means you can get incredible learnings from the base of existing customers that you have that you can then use to sort of apply to sort of the entire base. You find a learning in a certain pocket, and then you go and apply that to everybody. You know, just thinking about the landscape of payments for a second, it's been pretty messy for many, many years. And even Shopify, as you mentioned, I mean, they didn't have it all figured out. And I, I would argue that their partnership with Stripe was probably the most important 
partnership that they'd ever entered into because of the complexity of the payment processing side of the coin. And that was a massive headache for a lot of Shopify merchants for a long time. No, I think completely. And I think Stripe's done an incredible business at building a product where if you want to add payments to or kind of financial sort of services or payments or a core part of your business, they are the company to go and partner with in order to kind of get this infrastructure out of the box. I think there's some still some work to do in terms of like, how do you do that in a more internationally centric manner? Because payments is different in every country. So I think that there's, it's interesting just how large that opportunity is. How do you think about the competitive landscape? So I'd imagine names like Chargeify, Recurly, Recharge, maybe Fusebill are, are these com- key competitors. Are you also a payment processor? Like, would you consider yourself competing with other payment processors like a Stripe? Yeah. So I think the competitive landscape is is sort of a really interesting one for us. So to answer the question directly, yes, we do process the payments. So we are technically kind of a, a competitor to a, a Stripe or an Adyen or, or something like that. Equally, we do replace in a lot of these companies the likes of a, a Chargebee or a Chargeify or a Curly or kind of one of these solutions. I think it's sort of really a, a core difference of philosophy in, in how we think kind of competitively. And it's really the, the do-it-yourself versus do-it-for-you. If you think of one of these other subscription billing management platforms, you're really going there to help yourself better solve the problem yourself. You're going to one of these things and then you're going and picking a, a payments platform. You're going and picking a way or a method to help you pay taxes or deal with fraud or any of these things. And you're plugging all of those things in. Really, our approach is to say sort of, well, that is one completely valid way of going and building kind of that business and building that stack. Um, the other way is sort of, we're going to do this explicitly for SaaS companies. And instead of you having to go and sign seven different agreements with seven different companies and then figure out how all of those pieces fit together, we're just going to give you one platform that's specifically built for SaaS companies. And if you're a subscription commerce business, like you're doing physical products, we're not the right fit. Like if you're a telecoms company or an insurance company that has a recurring element to it, we're still probably not the right fit. But if you're a, a SaaS business, B2B or B2C, like... We know the the challenges that you're going to go through. We know that you're going to be international from day one. We know that as a B2C or a prosumer business, you're probably going to go up market at some point. And then on the payment side of things, it's exactly the point that I kind of referenced previously with the Shopify thing. If Stripe is an incredible product, it's an incredible product if payments are a core part of what you need to do. And that's true for Shopify. It's true for Toast. It's true for kind of MindBody. It's true for a bunch of these companies where payments is a core part of what they do. Marketplaces, Uber, Lyft, kind of Airbnb. Payments is a central point of what they do. And Stripe is a great solution. We're trying to say is is actually, if you're a SaaS business, a B2B or a B2C SaaS business, your core product is not payments. That's just a thing that you have to go and do. In those instances, we think that maybe Stripe is not sort of the solution that you need because you shouldn't have to be an expert in payments in order to be able to take them. So instead of taking that approach, why don't we just take the approach of your engineers are never going to have to focus on payments or billing. They can focus on the reason that they actually joined the company, which is to solve whatever problem it is that you were trying to solve as a business. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. 
I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. A typical B2B client that comes to Paddle for the first time and then ultimately becomes a client, what does their existing payment stack look like? And how do you make it sort of less cluttered, less messy, and, and more sort of operationally sound? It could be any one of these providers that we've, we've talked about previously, but typically, actually, what it ends up being is it's some collection of payment providers, because they've collected a few over the years for different countries or regions or sizes of customer. You often find even just like kind of the, the bifurcation between I need something to take credit cards, and then I need PayPal as well, because everybody wants to pay with PayPal. So it tends to be those things sometimes a billing system, but more often than not, it's something homegrown because a lot of these billing kind of things start as, well, we just need to take someone's money and sort of our, like every business starts as simple as possible. It's like, oh, it's like a hundred bucks a month and per, per seat. And it starts like that. And then suddenly five years later, like you have custom deals and you have a sales team and you have usage-based pricing and all of this stuff. And you've sort of just stuck things onto the side of whatever you're using for payments and you decide you want to expand, you hire your first like international sales lead and so suddenly it needs to happen in a different currency. And then everybody's like, oh crap, like we didn't think of that. And you have to like rebuild the whole thing or like you end up sticking a, a ninth thing on the side of it. So oftentimes we're coming in and we're replacing that problem. And it's a huge decision for these businesses because we're asking them to say like, yeah, rip and replace everything that you've built and replace it with paddle. So it's not a small decision, but it tends to be one where it's sort of like we're removing complexity as opposed to adding it. Really, our approach is like, how do we replace the, the fundamental underlying system of record? And sort of, yeah, you're still going to have like a net suite and a sales force and an accounting tool and all of these things that you want to plug into this, but it's you're going to plug it into a, a centralized system. And what we're trying to do is say, okay, here's the one piece of infrastructure that is going to future-proof all of those decisions. So every six to 12 months, you don't have somebody in the, the engineering team and the finance team and the RevOps team going in and trying to figure out how you're now going to support this new SKU or this new market or this new thing. It's sort of, you've replaced it with a baseline where you can kind of build from it and it understands all of these concepts that you're going to go through. Like the biggest challenge in that that we see is the company that goes from self-serve to sales assisted. They don't turn off self-serve and then just switch to sales assisted. They gradually add sales assisted on top of self-serve. And self-serve starts to become a feeder for the sales team to kind of upsell and cross-sell into accounts. Well, typically those are two different systems. Like you have a billing system that you're using for the self-serve stuff and a bunch of like marketing automation stack and, and kind of analytics and things like that you have there. And then you have like a sales force and a CRM and probably an accounting tool for invoicing on the other side of things. In a world where those two things are entirely separate from each other and never the, the two shall meet, like it's fairly easy to pull a report from one or a report from another and you smush them together and you get like how much money we made last month. That's not the reality of any sales team ever. For us, like that's a well-baked concept because we're only building it for SaaS companies. We know that this thing is going to happen. So we support the ability for a customer to move between these two things. Just rewinding back to the origin story of Paddle for a sec. Talk to me about the initial software business you created when you were 14 
And then, of course, Paddle, which came later. I would love to hear the origin story of Paddle. And also, I heard that there's a pretty interesting story around the registration of the Paddle.com domain. <laughs> there is. I, I will get to that. So my my background is I I discovered the internet when I was pretty young, um, when I was sort of 13, 14, fell in love with it. Definitely the sign of a super sociable kid that is um, in terms of spends all of their time locked in a bedroom on the internet, but started teaching myself to build websites and then started building, I would go like door to door in the town I grew up in and like to like a local restaurant or whatever that didn't have a website. And I'd be like, can I make you a website? It's going to be a hundred pounds or kind of $150 or whatever. Definitely way too cheap for a website, but kind of fell in love with doing that. And then at some point, somebody asked me for an invoice. Uh, like one of these people that I built a website for asked like a 14 year old kid for an invoice. Most of them were just paying in cash and, and didn't need one. But asked me for an invoice. So I went home and immediately like Googled, like what is an invoice and like QuickBooks or zero or like one of those things came up and it was like, it was like 10, 15 bucks a month. And me, I was sitting there. I was like, I'm not paying 10 or 15 bucks a month to send someone an invoice. So I was like classic kind of self-taught engineer mindset. I was like, I can build this. So I started building invoicing software for freelancers, like specifically the type of work I was doing. Um, building that invoicing software, fell in love with building a product rather than transcribing another like Italian restaurant menu or something. So fell in love with that, stopped building websites for people and sort of was, wasn't making this like pocket money anymore from doing that. So I was like, oh, I can just sell people access to this invoicing software. And this was probably like 2009, 2010. I was doing that and started selling the invoicing software had a bright idea. And this was sort of around the time of like daily deals were really big, like kind of daily deals, group buying, Groupon, like all that stuff, massive. Came up with the idea of like, if you buy invoicing software and you're a freelancer, you probably buy a bunch of other stuff as well. Probably buy project management or sort of if you're a photographer, you buy a photo editing, like whatever. So just started approaching companies who were building complementary products and said like, as a way for us all to like co-market each other's products, why don't we put together these like bundles of kind of software? And you can imagine the underlying complexity of having to sell 10 products at once that then like only one of those you needed to renew and sort of it was all kind of really complex stuff. And we figured that basically kind of a year into this business when we were doing kind of four or five million dollars, we were like, we are spending more time on figuring out how we administer billing and sort of pay taxes in all these different countries and sort of deal with chargebacks and fraud and all of this stuff that like we're spending more time on that than we are actually building this product. So that was a great moment of frustration for me. And fortunately, as a 16 year old, I was fairly well networked because we'd done all of these partnerships with other software companies. In a moment of frustration, probably like a year, like six months later, I think I was about 17 at the time, I, call, I just emailed all of them. And I was like, we're struggling with this thing. What do you use for billing? Like, how do you deal with this? And I was really just looking for a product that I could go and buy that would do it all for me. And it would like solve a problem. And this is probably the first moment in my life that I realized that if you get somebody talking about something they hate, they can go on for a long time. So I got like, I got some emails back that were like 15 paragraphs long of just like kind of founders of these small businesses, like venting into their laptops about how they use 12 different things and it's no one's actual job. And unless it breaks, which it does all the time, and then it becomes everybody in the company's job for like 72 hours and all this stuff. And basically the, the TLDR of that is, I didn't necessarily find a thing that I could just go and buy. Met my co-founder, Paddle Harrison, who was somebody I hired 
to, in the previous business to help us with those partnerships and, and kind of setting those up. Moved to London, we were 18 and started Paddle. And we had a thesis of what we wanted to go and do, which was make selling software easier for people. And ever since we've been focused on this, how do we build this like do it for you infrastructure for billing payments and, and kind of taxes and everything that goes into the, the back office of running a, a software company ever since. But you had dropped out of school. You're working on this full time? Yeah. We skipped over that little piece. Yeah. So I dropped out of school during the first business. So I, the first business started to take off when I was like 15, approaching 16. And I dropped out of school when I was 16 with the, the deal that I had with my parents was essentially that like, you probably don't get many opportunities to, as a 16 year old, run a $5 million business. So you can drop out of school and run this business on the like proviso that if slash when it fails, you go back to school, either sort of college or sort of whatever, but you kind of continue education in, in, in some way or another. So made that deal, dropped out of school at 16, haven't yet been back. So sort of we'll see if everything comes entirely crumbling down and uh, I end up back somewhere. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> You know, I, I just jotted down some names because I was researching before the episode. So, so Toby Lutke, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Jack Dorsey. These are all dropouts. So had they not left school, I mean, this would be a world without Shopify, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Oracle, Twitter, etc. Yeah, I love to learn. I just don't do so well with like structured ed- education. Yeah, but I think, you know, apprenticeship based learning, let's say, if you look at Germany as a model, seems not only practical, but probably inevitable, I would say. It becomes less about a group and more about an individual, I think, when you go into that. And I think that's the key distinction. It's sort of don't paint everyone with the same brush or try and teach them the same stuff. But actually, everybody kind of learns in their own way at their own pace. And sort of this seldom substitute for just trying something and you'll learn way more from trying it than being told how to try it. When do you get named a Teal Fellow? And for those that don't know what a Teal Fellow is, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so the Teal Fellow thing happened it's like 2015, 2016, something like that. So Teal Fellowship is Peter Teal, um, who was co-founder of PayPal, then I think first investor in Facebook. Rich guy, very <laughs> done very well for himself. Um, also doesn't believe in this idea of, of kind of like university, um, college and, and things like that. To your point, believes that kind of, I think people can do it better by kind of giving it a shot or kind of learning in industry, if you like, by starting something or creating something. So he has a thing called the Teal Fellowship, which essentially gives people $100,000 spread over two years. And it's not equity, it's a grant to the individual. So there's no, it's, there's no exchange for it. It's sort of philanthropic from, from his perspective to effectively say, instead of going to college or university or whatever, post finishing like high school, here is essentially 50 grand a year so that you're not going to starve. You can afford a place to rent. You can kind of do all this stuff. It's 50 grand a year. Go build something. And so they invited me to join. I joined. And honestly, it was it was an incredible experience. I'm still in the fellowship kind of technically, but I don't get the money anymore. But sort of like the community of people that you meet that are basically doing the same thing as you, either building a, a company or researching something or some of them are doing nonprofit stuff, but building a thing whilst also being very, very young. Like it's the kind of, it's the culmination of those two things. Cause I think like my peer group, when I was that age of starting a company were people in their like late twenties, early thirties, early forties, building a company. So it's not like you can go and like, you can have dinner with these people, 
and like you can talk about business, but you can't actually relate to them on any sort of like personal, like one to one level. Like this thing's really stressful, or like whatever. So it was it was great to just be around a group of people who were my age, building companies, and like we're going through the same stuff in life as we are in in kind of like building a business as well. So that was the number one kind of, of takeaway for me out of out of that whole experience. And some of the people who were in it at the same time as me were were people like Dylan Fields, who co-founded a company called Figma. Vitalik Buterin also, right, of Ethereum? Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, there's a bunch of like far more impressive people than, than I am kind of who have been through that. I heard also a funny story that basically they call you on like a Wednesday and they tell you, hey, Christian, uh, we want you to be a part of this fellowship. We want you to fly to San Francisco on Friday. So yeah, it was like a Wednesday. I think it was in the back of an Uber. I got a phone call. I'm not entirely sure how they got my phone number, but <laughs> so I got a phone call and they were like, San Francisco, Friday, over the weekend, need two slides. I didn't really know any details about it. And they subsequently like sent me a bunch of stuff. But yeah, and then I, I went there and I, I did my two slides and I did the interviews and stuff. And, and yeah, I got a call three or four weeks later being like, yeah, you're in. So cool. So as you look back, obviously, you've had an unbelievable journey. Based on what you've learned about not only your experience running Paddle, but your experience as a founder, what makes an operator of a fast scaling SaaS company successful, in your opinion? Like, What is the archetype of a good leader? What do you think they understand that others don't? I think there are probably a number of things. And I think that certain people have different traits than others. I always sort of understood the compounding nature of these businesses. Like It was something that came very, very naturally to me. These subscription businesses or SaaS businesses, they layer. And actually with this compounding, you can get such incredible returns from a relatively low base of investment. And I found that fascinating. I am extreme pragmatist. Like I love like the details of things to a fault sometimes in terms of it kind of probably doesn't help me these days of like when my job, when we're a 400 person company is to be a little bit more over the top of it all. I still get into the weeds on things. But I think that that characteristic was probably the thing that helped me for the first five years of the business. Um, it was sort of, I don't claim to be very good at anything, but I kind of understand everything. I can code, I can kind of design poorly, I can sell to people, I'm quite good at having a conversation. If you throw me a spreadsheet and give me half an hour, I'll figure out how it works and I'll be able to do it. I don't do any of those things particularly well, but as a founder of one of these businesses, I think I'm, I'm a really solid generalist. And I think for me, that was really, really helpful. If you have post-product market fit and a million dollars in ARR, like... It's still really hard, but there is a fairly clear path for you controlling three or four metrics and doing the right things to get to 10 million. You get to 10 million and the same thing is true for getting to 100 million. So I think that like my pragmatic nature and that being true about this business model, I think are the, uh, the things that enabled me. Makes total sense. Thanks for sharing that. In the last few minutes, we got a hit on this. What is the story around paddle.com and grabbing that URL? So it's a story that isn't very interesting, but ends with a, with something that's somewhat funny. Obviously, initial idea behind Paddle was we thought we were building a consumer business as well as a P2P business. We thought we were building this marketplace. So we were kind of figuring out like what should the name be? And we decide on a few like characteristics of the name. Like we want it to be one word. We want it to be a dictionary like word. We wanted to make sure that we could get the .com for it. It had to be something that was brandable and vaguely non-offensive in most languages. And so 
like the honest answer is we went on a list of like things like bydomains.com or something and we went down the list and we were like filter by one word maximum this length english has the dot com or a bunch of different names that we, we could have bought but we saw paddle and we were like that's cool like i can see us building a brand around the word paddle so like initially at paddle we didn't raise a ton of money because i'd made some money like building kind of the previous business it wasn't enough to like start paddle but it was enough for me to because i was the only person working on it kind of build this business and then we eventually kind of pre-launch of paddle we built the whole product not knowing what the name of it was going to be but pre-launch we raised 150 grand from somebody to help us kind of through this launch period and kind of hire a couple of people um so we were like we're going to have an influx of customers so we need support and all this stuff so we raised 150 grand and then we immediately went and spent $120,000 on the domain apaddle.com, which sort of as an 18-year-old and sort of using someone else's money probably isn't the best use of funds to go and buy this random domain name paddle.com. But so we were like really bought in on using the name paddle and like we really loved it, fell in love with it. And we'd spent literally pretty much every penny that we had on buying this domain name and we launched the marketplace and obviously that doesn't go very well like because like we made a grand total of eight hundred dollars in revenue in our first three months so that isn't going very well and then to add insult to injury the investor that gave us the 150 grand we just moved into his office and we got our first piece of mail like the fedex guy comes in and we're just like harrison my co-founder like so freaking excited we're like we're a real business now like we have post like all this stuff and the FedEx guy has it to us. We open it. It's us getting sued for using the name paddle.com like a week and a half after we launch. And it turns out that another company, also a software slash payments company, had registered the trademark for paddle a week and a half before we had like bought the name. <laughs> At the time, I think it's different now. At the time in the UK, like the online search thing to look for trademarks where you can see what's registered we went on there and we searched it and it was completely clear like there was nothing there and at the time nearly 10 years ago it took two weeks for new registrations to appear online if we'd waited four days we would have known this we didn't so the first thing that we had to navigate as a business was getting sued for using the name paddle and we were it's interesting because they were another company who was relatively small, had raised about the same amount of money for us and obviously hadn't spent all on the domain name Paddle.com because they didn't have it. But sort of they didn't have enough money to rebrand and we couldn't afford not to use the name Paddle.com. So we literally spent the first like four weeks of the, the life of like the actual product being live in the world acquiring this other company like because they were sort of going out of business and we were like there's no way for us to like actually get this because they were like they thought this was i think a last ditch attempt of like maybe we can sell the name for enough money in order to like get some cash into the business to like rebrand and then give ourselves some more runway so we yeah we spent four or five weeks negotiating that we ended up raising a little bit more money from the same investor to go and buy that business for I think 250 grand. So your first two big milestones with this cash is 120K for the domain and then a bunch of cash to just swallow up this company by default. <laughs> yeah, so it was like 370 grand that the name Paddle cost us like total. So like you better believe that we have every trademark in the world around the, like you basically they can't print a dictionary with the word Paddle in it without kind of asking us first. But like, so yeah, that was the, uh, that was definitely like baptism with fire as a 18 year old. Like this is all going to be great. And like, no, immediately get sued. Every founder's got a good war story. That is one of the best ones I've heard. 
Look, Christian, thanks so much for the time. Congrats on what you've built with Paddle. It's an incredible story. Amazing news. Congrats on the Series D. Wishing you the best from here, man. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome, explorers of the human experience. This is Let's Talk Soul, and I'm your host, Claudia Monticelli. We're not afraid of the great mysteries of existence here. Soul versus consciousness, we're on it. Spirituality versus science, we've got that covered too. Join us in navigating these profound topics with wisdom, curiosity, and a dash of audacity. Whether you're a spiritual veteran or just starting your journey, Let's Talk Soul is your passport to the unknown. Let's Talk Soul, diving into the depths of the human spirit. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.